Right after I became a, a Christian, I had a bit of a dilemma. And the reason is that my plan before I was a Christian of what I was going to do with my life was that I was going to move to the islands and I was going to start a nightclub and that was going to be my life because I liked drinking and drugs and everything that kind of came with that and I loved the beach. So I thought, hey, that's what, that was my plan. And then I got saved and I had no idea what I was going to do uh, because that plan got, got blown out of the window. So I began asking the Lord, what, what should I do? And um, I was talking with a friend named Shelby who was uh, discipling me at, at that time and helping me to understand the Bible and what Jesus was calling me to. And he said, well, why don't you, why don't you come out to Colorado with me for the summer and um, go to this thing called, uh, it, was, it was a conference, uh, the Campus Crusade for Christ was putting on. So I went there and we're sitting in this big stadium and we were up, up near the top somewhere. And I'm sitting next to Shelby, and this guy gets out on stage, and his name, is, his name is Bill Bright. He was the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ, a man who God used greatly to, yeah, to get the gospel really all around the world and predominantly on, on college campuses. And as he began his talk, he said, this, this evening, we are going to talk about the Great Commission. Now, I was a brand new Christian, so I didn't know any of the lingo at all. And I leaned over to Shelby, and I said, what's the Great Commission? And he looked at me kind of strangely, and he's like, it's the reason you're alive. I said, okay. And Bill Bright proceeded to preach from, from the Gospel of Matthew about the commission, the great commission that Jesus gave to his disciples to take the good news of Christ crucified and Christ resurrected and forgiveness in his name to the ends of the earth. And that, that was the commission for the disciples, and it is also for all those who follow Jesus today. And as we come to the end of the Gospel of Luke, we are going to see this, this great commission. That Jesus is going to appear to his, his disciples after his, his death and his, his resurrection. He's going to come to them. He's going to speak pr uh, a promise of peace to them and a word about the power that is to come from on high. And then he's going to tell them that they are to take his name to the ends of the earth, which was their commission and it is ours if we know Christ and follow Him as well. So if you have your Bibles, come with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. This morning we're going to be in verses 33 down through 53. And this is the final scene of the Gospel of Luke. And it acts, even as Josh pointed out for us, as a hinge between part one of Luke's writing and part two of Luke's writing. The Gospel of Acts followed by the book, uh, I'm sorry, the Gospel of Luke, followed by the Acts of the Apostles. Luke's writing began with the birth of Jesus, and now it concludes with the birth of the church. It's the ending of one story this morning and the beginning of, of another. Jesus uh, is shown in the Gospel of Luke in his, his personal earthly ministry. It's going to fade with his ascension. And now we're going to see in the book of Acts that Jesus does his same work now through his body who remains on earth, who is the church empowered by the Holy Spirit. So this is the continuation of the, the work of Jesus in the earth. Now he does it from heaven as our head through the body who is, who is the church. Now, as we watch what Jesus says to his disciples about this and get our own marching orders, um, we're going we're to come to this text with kind of one big idea over the whole thing, and this, this is it. That the resurrected Jesus promises peace.
peace and power to those who worship Him. We're going to see this this morning, that the the resurrected Jesus promises peace and power to those who worship Him, which I think we'll see is the only right response to Him. The way that this text unfolds is kind of in, in three parts. We're going to see His appearance, His instruction, and then His ascension. His peace-giving appearance, His promise-filled instruction, followed by His praise-inducing ascension. Let's begin here with this this peace-giving appearance that Jesus makes in Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 33. They rose. Now, real quick, this is the the two disciples who had encountered Jesus on the road to Emmaus, and he had revealed himself to them over a meal. He's talking about those two disciples. They rose that same hour from Emmaus and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has indeed risen, and he appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. And as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands. And my feet, that it is I myself, touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. So we left off last time in in the Gospel of Luke with Cleopas and the other disciple. They had encountered the Lord Jesus in a meal, or they well, they'd been talking to him the whole way to Emmaus, and he had been showing them from the scriptures how Jesus had fulfilled everything that the Old Testament had promised. And then he reveals himself in the meal. And so as soon as Jesus does that, and then he disappears, these two guys hook a Yui and they head back to Jerusalem. They're like, we've got, to, we've got to go back and we've got, to, we've got to tell the disciples what we have seen. So they, they hurry back, probably a lot faster than they were going out to Emmaus. And they found the other apostles and they crash in and they're like, you guys are not going to believe what happened. And the apostles are like, no, 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 you're not going to believe what happened. And they interrupted them there in verse 34. And the apostles say to these two disciples who just rolled in, the Lord has risen indeed and he appeared to Simon. And the Maus guys say, get out of town. That's what happened to us. He appeared to us as well. And then they recounted. that we, we walked with him and we talked with him and he opened the scriptures for us like you wouldn't um, even be able to imagine. And then he broke bread and then we saw him and we knew him and then he disappeared. So we had to come back here and tell you guys. Well, verse 36 says they were talking about these things. Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. 
Now, the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verse 19, gives us a little more information. It says, on the, on the evening of that day, so the same day that Jesus rose from the dead. Remember, Jesus rose from the dead. He appears to Mary and the, and the women. Then he appears to Simon. Uh, and then he appears to the guys on uh, the road. And now he's appeared to these guys. So, on the evening of that same day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews... Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace to you. Now, the the door is locked. They're in there talking about Jesus. And then all of a sudden, he appears among them. Now, I mean, how do you think you would have responded? (laughs) Yeah, it spooked them. (laughs) There he is. He's like right, he's right there. Verse 37, they were startled and frightened and thought that they saw a spirit. This is so unexpected, they thought they saw a ghost. Now, Jesus is going to, he's going to go out of his way right here to make really clear that he is not a ghost. And this is, this is, you know, important for a lot of reasons, but primarily because, as we've seen through this ending part of the Gospel of Luke, a dead Jesus or a spirit-only Jesus is a useless Jesus. He can't save anybody if he's just an idea. This Jesus literally rose from the dead. Literally, physically, bodily rose from the dead. The same flesh and bone body that was conceived in the virgin's womb and placed in the rich man's tomb is the same flesh and bone body that was resurrected. The same exact one. Though in some sense... The body is, is altered. He's glorified in a sense we don't get tons of details about, but he's altered enough that they, they don't recognize him unless he shows himself to them, but he still has his scars. We don't know more than that. If you want to read a lot of speculation about it, there's tons of books that will go on and on about it. We just don't know. But what we do know is that Jesus wants them to know that he's not a ghost. But he is physically alive. Look at verse 38. He said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. So Jesus, he sees they're confused, but he counters their confusion with an offer for them to examine his body to ensure that he's, he's real. How patient of our Lord. I mean, how, how patient. He humbly invites them to investigate. But by taking a hold of the hands, they were pierced for their pardon to examine the feet wounded for their forgiveness. I'm not sure if you remember or not, but at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry in the Gospel of John, Jesus, uh, Jesus said, come and see. Come and see. And now here at the end, before He ascends, He says, come and see. Examine. See if I am not who I say that I am. And then he says, you have any food? 
I guess raising from the dead makes you hungry. I don't know. <laughs> but he says, do y'all have some food? And he, verse 41, he said, do you have anything to eat? And they, they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. So he downs this fish fillet in front of him, and then it, it, doesn't, it doesn't drop on the floor, which is kind of the point. I think he's proving to them, uh, ghosts don't eat, y'all. And he's, he's proving them, I'm, I'm alive. He's physically alive. How patient of the Lord to show himself to them. Touch my hands, touch my feet. I'll eat with y'all. This is the Jesus of the Bible, that he is a patient Savior, one who desires his people to draw near and behold him in his risen glory. He's alive. Now, did you notice the question that Jesus asked them earlier before he he does this proof? There in verse 38, he says, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? Now, certainly he could look at them and see they were spooked. They probably freaked out a bit. But I think there's something else that we're supposed to notice here. He knew what was in their hearts. Jesus does this all the time in his ministry. People will be saying something or thinking something, and he knows it. And again, this is intended to be a great comfort for us, that we have a Savior who knows what troubles and terrifies our hearts. Jesus is not just the universe creating and the galaxy sustaining Son of God. He is also the good shepherd and the intimate Savior who knows the anxieties and the afflictions and all the causes of doubt and unbelief in the hearts of His people. He knows your innermost being, like not even like you do. Like nobody else on the planet, He knows you. He knows what terrifies you. Now we're told in John's Gospel they're hiding for fear of the Jews, which is is pretty logical. If, If you're associated with Jesus, I mean, you saw what happened with Jesus, so the assassins are probably coming for, for them as well. And yet, yet Jesus entered into that fear. And he spoke words of comfort to them. That there's no need to fear because he's alive from the dead. Jesus, verse 36, stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. Of everything he could have said to them, he says, Peace to you. He comes to comfort their hearts. This is, these are words of grace. I mean, think about it. Think of all the things Jesus could have said to them. I mean, just three days earlier, all these men turned from Him. Yet rather than scolding them for their cowardly compromises, rather than rebuking them for running away in His time of need, Rather than shaming them for breaking their promises of of faithfulness, not a harsh word right here. Only peace to you. J.C. Ryle, one of my favorite 
authors from days gone by said this about these words of peace that Jesus speaks here. We see in this touching saying one more proof that the love of Christ surpasses knowledge. It is His glory to pass over a transgression. He delights in mercy. He is far more willing to forgive than we are to be forgiven. This is in His almighty heart. An infinite willingness to put away man's transgressions. Though our sins are as scarlet, He is ever ready to make them white as snow to blot them out, to cast them behind His back, to bury them in the depths of the sea, to remember them no more. Ryle goes on, Where then is the sinner, however great his sins, who need be afraid of coming to such a Savior as this? Peace to you, the risen Lord Jesus says to the disciples and to all those who will come in faith and hear His voice. These men had been troubled and terrified and filled with shame. Yet He gave them and gave us, if we'll trust in Him, these words, peace to you. Peace in, 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 he, in, the word, in Hebrew, the word is, is shalom. It means wholeness or completeness or fullness. It is what humanity lost in the Garden of Eden when we sinned against God, leaving in its wake fear and anxiety and shame and guilt. But the reason that Jesus came is He entered into the world to restore what sin had stolen, to bring the shalom, to bring the peace that we gave away in our rebelling against God. This is the whole reason that Jesus came is to bring this peace that He proclaims to these disciples even here. The whole Gospel of Luke has testified to this. In chapter 1, you remember Zacharias spoke of Jesus' forerunner who came to give light to those in darkness and to guide our feet into the way of peace. Luke 2, the angels spoke to the shepherds about Jesus saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Then in Luke chapter 2, the elderly Simeon who had been waiting for Messiah looked upon the infant Jesus and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. Luke 4, standing with his trembling disciples in the boat as the storm comes upon them, he says to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. In Luke 7, to the woman who is known as a great sinner who wept with joy upon Jesus' feet because she had been forgiven so much, he said, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. In Luke 8, to the woman with the discharge of blood who touched him in faith and shame, wouldn't even run up to him, but touched the hem of his garment. Do you remember what he said to her? Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Just before his betrayal and crucifixion, Jesus was with his disciples and he promised them in John 14, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. I am with you. To the end of the age, he'll tell them later. And then after his resurrection, once again here, the Lord Jesus comes to his cowering disciples and he says to them, peace be to you. 
Jesus gave peace in His life. He purchased peace by His death. And He promised peace upon His resurrection. Peace with God. That Jesus, through faith in Him, we can be reconciled to God and our sins forgiven, united with God as Father, and then reconciled to one another. Peace with us and peace in the midst of circumstances no matter what we face. Jesus was raised to restore what sin stole away. And their response there in verse 41, they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling. Meaning, they, it, it's like saying, this is too good to be true. It's like, is this real life? Is this happening? There was peace and amazement when Jesus appeared to them. Well, his... His peace-giving appearance gives way to promise-filled instruction, which is the second part here. Promise-filled instruction, beginning in verse 44. Then he said to them, "There are my words that I, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer on the third day and rise from the dead. And suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So as Jesus comes to them and appears to them, speaks words of peace to them, proves that he is alive, that he is not some ghost, but he is real, he then reminds them of the lessons that he had spent years giving them. Verse 44, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you. Jesus is rehashing for them all of the old notes from what he's told them. And what, what lessons in particular? Well, specifically, how the whole Old Testament was given to point to himself. Verse 44, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Jesus is here, just like he did with the guys on the road to Emmaus. He is once again proving that the original intent of the law, the prophets, which would include the writing of the prophets of, of Samuel and the kings, and the Psalms, that the original intent of those is about him. That it's written to be fulfilled. To be fulfilled by him. Everything written about me, he says. This means that the whole Old Testament was written in order to be fulfilled by Jesus. So when we read the law and hear about the lambs and the feasts and the festivals, when we come and we see about the praises of Israel and we see the lament and we see the exodus and we see the exile, all of it is intended to invoke some sort of anticipation in our heart that somebody's going to come to fulfill all of this. And Jesus says, I'm the one. It's all about me. Now, once again here, I think it's important for us to, to make note 
that rather than scolding them for not understanding everything that they should have, he opened their mind to understand the Scriptures. I mean, I don't know about you, but if I was Jesus, which I would be a terrible Jesus, by the way, but if, you know what I'm saying, if I were Jesus, I'd have been pretty frustrated. I'm like, three years, y'all? Three years, same thing. I'm the fulfillment. Same thing every time. Law, about me. Psalms, about me. Prophets, it was about me. The whole thing, he's been doing this time in, time out. All day long, he's been teaching them this. But do you notice how patient he is? How kind he is here? The he, he opens their mind. Which, as we, we look about this, just a word of encouragement. Just be patient with yourselves in your learning of Jesus. Be patient with other people in your learning and their learning of Jesus. None of us learn as quickly as we should. And Jesus here gives us a good model of the sort of patient persistence that he has with his disciples. That he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. Just as with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, he's helping them to, well, we're seeing here to know that, that seeing the Bible correctly is a miracle. That Jesus has to give eyes to see. They keep missing it. He's got to help them see. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 tells us that the natural mind can't understand God's word and wisdom. That naturally, the Bible is a fairy tale to us. I remember as soon as I became a Christian, I started trying to talk to my friends about Jesus. I remember there was this girl named uh, Joy that I worked with uh, at a restaurant. And I remember I was so excited talking about Jesus. And she just looked at me and she said, listen, I'm glad that's working for you. But I do not need a book with a bunch of fairy tales to tell me how to live my life. I'm quite fine. Thank you very much. And I remember thinking, I totally understand why she says that. Because that's the same way that I used to think about the Bible. That apart from God moving, the Bible is just a mere book of rules and rituals. That it's some jaded historical survey with some fanciful speculation about what happens after you die. But when Jesus gives new eyes, the lights are turned on and we see the Scriptures completely differently. All of a sudden, the Bible goes from just being some book that we've tried to hide or ignore to all of a sudden being the most precious thing to us because it's, it's, it's a love letter from our Heavenly Father. We begin to understand that, that in it are the words of life that's authoritative over our life and sufficient for every trouble and trial in life. And we begin to see Jesus is the fulfillment of the entire thing. As 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 2 Corinthians 1 says that all the promises of God are yes and amen in him. It's all intended to point us to Jesus whom God gives us a heart to love. So once again, just a word of, of consideration that it's important to notice here that even believers are hindered from seeing the Bible clearly. The reason I point that out is because I want us to, we should be a people who read the Scriptures every day, regularly in them, reading them. But we've got to understand that as we're reading them, we need to do so prayerfully, asking God to help us to see because we all come, 1 Corinthians 13 tells us, to the Scriptures, to all, to all of life really, as in a mirror dimly. 
We all have natural limitations, and we come to the Scriptures with our own biases, with our own experiences in education and economic situation or political affiliation or cultural or ethnic backgrounds, and that always influences the way we read the Bible, all of us. This is why it is important for us as we come to the Scriptures to pray, Lord, help me to see the Word. Help me to see what it means. This is also why it's important to read the Bible in a community of people who aren't just like you. Because you can get into a little holy huddle where everybody has the same kind of experiences and backgrounds in life, and you're going to read the Bible with that same slant. This is why Jesus pulls together in the church a body of diverse people from all sorts of different experiences and backgrounds because we need each other, because we all have the Holy Spirit in us if we're believers, to help each other to see the fullness of what God has revealed. Pray as you read the Bible and read the Bible with one another. This is what is to mark God's people. We do it humbly. Well, Jesus is going to open the eyes of these disciples to show them that everything's about him once again. What he patiently instructed his disciples to see, verse 46, is that it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Jesus believes that a plain reading of the Old Testament proves that he indeed is the Messiah because he fulfilled everything that it foretold. The Old Testament clearly set forth that the Christ should suffer. This is, it's, it's, it's from page to page, it's from cover to cover in the, in the Old Testament. I mean, as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, They deserved to die for their sin, but God promised a Savior who would be born, who would crush Satan's head, and in the process would be wounded. And the rest of the Old Testament echoes that promise. The entire sacrificial system is laid out in the law showing that blood had to be shed for the forgiveness of sins. Somebody's going to pay for rebelling against God. But then God tells them that he's going to come among them and do it himself. I mean, there's tons of places we could go, but just listen to this from Isaiah 53. It's a well-known passage, but Lord, give us ears to hear it afresh. This is 700 years before Jesus comes on the scene. Jesus says, when you read this, it should be like blazing lights that this is about him. Listen to this. Speaking of Messiah, who is to be the sacrifice for the nation. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. And that was the whole charge. Jesus is a blasphemer. This is why he's dying. But the prophet Isaiah, if they'd listened to him, he said, "Uh uh-uh, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's 700 years before Jesus came, 
And that's certainly not the only place in the Old Testament that's like that. We could be here all day reading through and highlighting the ways that this suffering of the, the servant of God as Messiah would come. And Jesus is, is him. He wants his disciples and us to see that, that his suffering wasn't a failure. It wasn't just some kind of detour, but it was foretold and decreed. It is the thread that holds all of the Scripture of the Old Testament and all of history together. But he also wants them to see that he did not merely suffer, but that our salvation was completed by, on the third day, rising from the dead. There's several Scriptures you can look to here, but but Psalm 16.9 is one that's used repeatedly in the book of Acts, where the apostles will say, He said this was going to happen. David speaks of himself there, but with a greater view in, in mind, where he says, My heart is glad, and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure, for you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. Thousand years before Jesus died and rose, David foretold that the Holy One of God would not decay. It couldn't have been about David because his bones are still in Jerusalem. But Jesus, when he died, he rose from the dead just as it was foretold because death could not hold him. He is alive. And what Jesus' death and resurrection purchased was a promise that requires a response that believers proclaim to the end of the earth. Look at verse 47. Their repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. What God has done to grant forgiveness to sinners like you and like me is staggering. And how He has called us to respond is humbling. What He says is the message to the world in light of His death and resurrection is this. Repent for the forgiveness of sins. The word repent, does anybody know what it means? Well, I'll help you then. It means to turn. That's what it means to repent. It means, it means to turn. God says that by faith, you need to stop going your own broken, rebellious, prideful, self-reliant, self-exalting way You need to to turn from your sin and you need to turn to God through faith in Jesus believing that He died. Not just historically, okay, He died, but that He actually died for you because you needed a death in your place and that He rose and that He not just rose, but He rose for you because you need forgiveness. He says that is the response. Repentance. Repentance. Repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. There's a turning from sin and a turning to God through Christ. And then what's the promise for those who will humbly obey through faith? They will receive mercy from God. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This is not popular. This is, this is completely offensive. But apart from Jesus, apart from trusting in Jesus, apart from turning from your sins and believing upon Him and Him alone for salvation, you are doomed. I am doomed. 
apart from Christ. Because we have a debt of guilt against us. If you just think about the Ten Commandments, if you, if you were to just read through those, you would see that there's nobody who escapes them. Anybody who says, hey, I'm a good person, you can just read through the Ten Commandments and say, all of us have lived without putting God first. Are you really going to say you've had no other gods before God? Have you always, every moment of your entire life, always put God first? Of course not. Have you ever lied? Have you ever lusted? Have you ever been manipulative? Have you ever tarred someone else's reputation even by withholding something that you, nice that you could have said so that you could get exalted? Have you ever had a murderous thought or feeling? Have you ever thanklessly coveted what somebody else has? Meaning that you just look over what God has given you and all you can think about is how, why did they get this or they get that? Listen, if, if, you've, if you've done all that perfectly and never done any of that, please, I'd love to take you out to lunch. I've never met a human who's done any of that. And neither is God. And this is what Jesus is telling us, that there's nobody who's good. Yeah, listen, y'all, y'all, all y'all are probably good compared to me. But on the day of judgment, God does not compare you to me or to somebody else. This is why it's so saddening to see a world that is consumed with making sure that we're better than everybody else and calling out everybody else while always so blind to our own sins. Because on the day of judgment, we're compared with Jesus, not with others. And, and listen, there's, there's so many people who just talk about, well, listen, we'll, well, we'll see when I die. Listen, we'll, we'll see. We'll see. I'm, I'm hoping. I'm hoping I'll get there. There's no hope if you die apart from Jesus. John 3.18 says this, Whoever believes in him, in Jesus, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. What that means is there's no dying with fingers crossed. There's no like, we'll see what happens. God's already told you. It's not like you might be condemned. He says you are condemned right now. Like live, like right at this very moment, if you are outside of Christ, if you're not repented of your sins and trusted in him, you are right now condemned for your sin. But that's the whole reason that Jesus came. He died and he rose so that for those who will repent, there is a storehouse of God's mercy that is poured out upon you. And who you are and who we are and how we relate to God is eternally transformed. We no longer face God as a righteous judge who condemns us, but now we face him as a benevolent father who delights in pouring out grace and love and mercy upon his children. But this mercy and this forgiveness is found, it says right here, only in his name. It's because Jesus alone has the authority to forgive sins. Listen, there is no other way to heaven. I realize that's not popular, but it's just what, the, it's what, it's what Jesus said. There is no other way to heaven. Listen to this from Acts 4. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. People have asked, 
Don't all roads lead to God? And the answer is yes. All roads lead to God. All religions lead to God. It's 100% true. But only one leads to God as Father. Every other road leads to Him as judge. Because every other system, whether it be the own thing that you make up, like before I was a Christian, I just had my own made-up religion. You're like, God, I made them in my own image and kind of just made up my own way. I just kind of picked things together that worked, whatever worked for me. But in the end, it was basically that I was going to be good enough to get into heaven if there was a God. Every other religion in some form or fashion is a measure of that. Whereas what Jesus did is completely worlds apart from every other religion that he came down and did for us what we could never do, a complete life of innocence and obedience and then died on the cross and then rose from the dead. And then now through faith in him, we can be forgiven. And for those who are forgiven, that great news, knowing that great news comes with a great responsibility. Verse 47, that his name should be proclaimed, or this forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. The resurrected Jesus commissions his people to proclaim the good news of the gospel to all nations beginning for them, the, the, the apostles, right at home there in Jerusalem. Listen to this from Acts chapter 17, verse 30. God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So on that last day, you don't have to stand before me. You don't have to stand before your parents. You don't have to stand before anybody else. We all have to stand before Jesus who was raised from the dead and we will give an account to him. And Jesus' hope, Jesus' resurrection is the, the hope for the whole world. This is not just some Jewish thing. This is not just some Western thing. This is not just some white man's thing. This is the word for every people of every tribe, tongue, and nation. This is who the gospel is for. To the ends of the earth. He says to the apostles, verse 48, you are witnesses of these things. They've heard and they've seen what Jesus did, that he died and he rose. They've known his forgiveness. And now they have the responsibility to testify to others what they've heard and what they've seen. He gives them a commission, a great commission. And with this commission, he also gives them a great promise. Verse 49, Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So what Jesus is calling his disciples to do, you got to remember, these are a bunch of fishermen, tax collectors. They've only been hanging out with Jesus for the past three years. These are not, they're not the cream of the crop. He's calling these men to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. This is an absolutely impossible task that's going to require supernatural strength. Their own abilities are going to be insufficient. So he promises to send the Holy Spirit, whom he calls here the promise of my Father. The reason he calls it the promise of my Father, and you can, you can find writings in Isaiah and Ezekiel and Joel, is that this is also promised, that the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, that he would be given to God's people in the last days. 
The Holy Spirit here is called the power from on high. What a great picture. That we're down here, um, and we're called to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. They're like, here we go. And he's like, whoa, 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 wait up. You need some power. And he peels back heaven, and he gives power from on high. The power of God from heaven to lift our souls, to know that our help comes from the Lord. And then as the gospel goes out, it lifts the souls of those who hear to see and to believe. Jesus here promises them power. He promises them all the gifts and all the graces that they will need to do what he has called them to do. He says, it will be given to you. And this is, this is important for all of us, whether we're preaching or evangelizing. You've got to remember that power in preaching and evangelizing has nothing to do with your age, with your ethnicity, with your storytelling ability, with your humor, with your volume, with your swag, with any of that kind of stuff. There's no power in you. He says you need power from on high, and the Father promises that he will give it to you. The power of preaching and evangelism is directly proportionate to the degree that the message magnifies Jesus and depends upon the Holy Spirit. That's where power comes from, which seems foolish to the world, but God gets tons of glory from that. Now, the beginning of Acts, um, in the beginning of Acts, Luke fills in a time of gap after this promise, uh, the gap of time that, that, uh, that comes from the time that Jesus gave this, this promise. Uh, Josh read it for us. Uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 3 says, He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So between verse 49 and verse 50, there's 40 days of Jesus hanging out with his disciples, appearing to people. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 tells us he appeared to some 500 people, proving that he is indeed alive and instructing them about the kingdom of God. And then that brings us to the final few verses of the Gospel of Luke. And we see praise-inducing ascension. His praise-inducing ascension. Ascension. Verse 50. This is 40 days after he appeared, 10 days before Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit will come. He led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carrying and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple. Blessing God. That's how it ends. Jesus led them to Bethany, which is where the Mount of Olives was, the place where he entered from for the triumphal entry right before his crucifixion, the place that he will return to fulfill all of God's promises. And from that sacred place, he blesses them. He blesses them. He proclaims favor and grace. He promises that his presence will be with them even to the end of the age in the Gospel of Matthew. He promises the Holy Spirit's power in Acts chapter 1. We get a a, a complimentary account. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And then Jesus ascends. He came humbly the womb of a virgin, and here he ascends in glory in a cloud. 
And do you notice their response? They worshiped him. And they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Now, Matthew will tell us that there were some who still doubted. They were still struggling, but they're worshiping him. Which, just, just a really clear note, Christians worship Jesus as the Son of God who will return to judge the world. They went back worshiping. They returned to the temple where daily they're going to... Can you imagine what it would have been like for them all of a sudden to now hear the law, the prophets, and the Psalms? It's all of a sudden they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. All right, y'all heard that message? Now it's time for the rest of the message. And this is why in the book of Acts you see all these riots start breaking out. Because when the sermon's over, they're like, uh-uh, y'all, sermon ain't over. Let me tell you about Jesus. And then they get up and they start evangelizing and proclaiming about how Jesus fulfilled everything that they were just talking about. Well, 10 days after Jesus ascends, the Holy Spirit falls upon them, and the world is never the same. They go out and they proclaim his name to the ends of the earth. In Acts, you see it in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. The book of Acts ends where? Where are they geographically? In Rome, at the very ends of the known world. During that time, you've got the apostles penning a number of the books. Countless people are believing in Jesus. But as we conclude this this series and our time together this morning, I think it's important for us to remember what it cost these disciples as they went. Nearly all these apostles gave their lives in service of Christ. According to church tradition, James, the son of Zebedee, was beheaded in Jerusalem. You can find that in the book of Acts. Philip was crucified in Phrygia in 54 A.D. Matthew, who penned the Gospel of Matthew, was beheaded in Ethiopia in 60 A.D. Barnabas was burned to death in Cyprus in 64 A.D. Mark was dragged to death in Alexandria in 64 A.D. Peter was crucified, tradition says, next to his wife, both upside down, for they felt that they were unworthy to die the death of their Lord. James, the half-brother of Jesus, was thrown from the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem in either 62 or 63 A.D. Paul, who penned much of the New Testament, who was a former persecutor of the church, who later became a worshiper of the risen Lord Jesus, was tortured and beheaded by Nero in 67 A.D. Nathaniel was flayed and then crucified in 70 A.D. Thomas, remember doubting Thomas? Well, he finished well. According to tradition, he was speared to death in India in 70 A.D. for preaching the gospel. Matthias, who replaced Judas, was stoned and then beheaded. Luke, who wrote this account in the book of Acts, was hanged to death in Athens. John was the only apostle to die peacefully, if you can call it that, after an unsuccessful attempt to boil him in oil. Why would these men, some of whom had doubts in their hearts after Jesus rose, why would these men offer their lives to take the gospel to the ends of the earth? Because they knew he was alive. Because they knew he was alive and he had promised peace and power to them. His presence gave them peace every step of the way and His power promised them that if Jesus could raise from the dead, that He could raise them from the dead as well. 
And that is the same promise and power that is given to us if we are in Christ. If we are indeed born again through faith in Christ, turning from our sins, trusting in Him, the same commission lays before us to take the gospel to our family, our friends, our neighbors, our community, to the ends of the earth. And as we go, we go worshiping Jesus. And the connection between worshiping Him and proclaiming Him to the world is important to see. That's what fuels the joy that will take us to the ends of the earth. If Jesus is just an idea and we're just sitting in here enduring a long sermon so we can check it off our list, listen, this is going to be worthless and a complete waste of your time. The reason we read and pray and sing and gather and scatter together is to remind each other that Jesus is indeed the Son of God who died and who is alive and who will come again. And as we meditate upon Him, He changes our hearts and warms our affection. And evangelism is the vent of joy. Meaning it's, it's what, when, when, you're, when you're filled with joy, it's what comes out of you. If you love Him, you talk about Him. That's why people do it. That's why they proclaim his name. It's because you love him. What else are you going to talk about? Election? Sports? I mean, talk about it. Fine. But don't be owned by it. We're bought with a price. He rose from the dead. He's coming back. There is grace for the nations. And Jesus calls his people to be a people who rest in his peace and go in his power to proclaim his name until he comes. May God give us grace until he returns again. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that it shows us Jesus. And we pray, Father, that you would make us a people who believe Jesus. God, would you guard us from being a people who are just, yeah, just show up? guard us from just showing up and just going through motions. God, would you make us a people who love you and fear you and delight in you? And God, might you make the overwhelming mark of our life is that we know the peace and the power given to you, given from you to us, that we might see Jesus and be filled with the Holy Spirit. God, might you use this church to make your name known across the dinner table and across the street and across the cubicle, and across throughout our community, throughout our nation, and to the ends of the earth. God, might you stir in us a heart to know Jesus and to make him known until he returns. In his name we pray. Amen.